Right, welcome to First Up. It's Ra Party. Thursday, the 14th of July, Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, the race for the leadership of Britain's Conservative Party took place overnight. You're going to hear about that. Also, drama at the Pacific Islands Forum as Chinese officials are ejected from a key meeting and a familiar voice had something to do with it. We're joined by a Christchurch butcher who's at his wit's end after his business was flooded for the sixth time in three years. And a former cop turned criminal barrister calls the government's new gang laws all huff and very little stuff. What it takes is a resolute and hard-nosed police management to actually focus on gangs and do what is required, and that's not what they're doing. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. Greetings to you and your families. And their families as well. We begin this morning in the UK where the first round of voting in the race for the leadership of the Conservative Party is underway. Joining me now from London is a man who last time we spoke, we both giggled and we said, I wonder if he'll go this time. <laughs> oh, how we laughed. But he did. It's a, well, in a way. It's Henry Riley who's with us. Kia ora, Henry. How are you, man? Giora, yes, uh, quite a difference a few weeks makes, eh? It is, hey. Now, I know that he said, yeah, oh, it's terrible, I'm resigning and I'll do this, but he's still there, obviously, and putting a cabinet together. However, there's still the race for that leadership. So tell me, who's come out on top in this first round of voting? Yes, so we now know the candidates who've been eliminated. So we started off with 11 candidates in total, Nathan. What does that tell you? Does that tell you there's a lot of talent in the Tory party or that there's a lot of people in the Tory party who think they're a bit better than they are? I'll leave Mm. you to be the judge of that. Uh, But 11 has now gone down further. It was at, what were we, eight uh, today. And now it is at six. So we've had two pretty key people be eliminated from the race. This is because they haven't received the required threshold of 30 MPs, just to give you some background, the Conservative Party having the high 300s uh, MPs. So these, okay. you know, it's quite a shock for, for two key names to not have that. Who are those two key people? Well, firstly, is the new Chancellor, the current Chancellor, he was only appointed last week, uh, Nadim Zahawi. He was previously very popular in the UK. He was the vaccines minister and until very recently, before his appointment as Chancellor, was the Education Secretary. So it's quite a shock that he's done uh, badly. Uh, people often wonder if him taking the job last week under Boris Johnson has perhaps tarnished his reputation somewhat. So he's out of the race. But crucially as well, Jeremy Hunt is out of the race. Now, why does he matter? He was the man that came second to Boris Johnson in 2019. He was the runner up when Boris Johnson was elected the first time around. This is a very senior politician. He was former foreign secretary. He was former health secretary and has been quite a key player in UK politics. So those two are eliminated. What does that mean? It means we have uh, six left. Rishi Sunak, the former chancellor until last week. Penny Morden, who's a former defence secretary, the first ever woman to hold that post. Liz Truss, our current foreign secretary. And then the three sort of outsiders are Kemi Badenoch, who was previously a sort of junior minister under Boris Johnson. Tom Tugendhat a former army officer and Suella Braverman the conservative attorney general so it is hotting up now the race and uh, we're going to see more and more candidates eliminated each time there is a, a round of voting yeah uh, we're speaking with Henry Riley as you just heard they they had 11 candidates so I just would like to know your feedback 2101 if you have 11 candidates do you not really have one Okay, so it's like that. If you've got 11, do you not really have one? So just 2101, let us know about that. So can you tell us, these candidates, they've got to do the run. What have they been saying in this last week? How are they playing it whenever they have to mention Boris Johnson? 
Well, what is interesting is Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, even though they've been prime minister and chancellor for all that time during the coronavirus, obviously Rishi Sunak no longer in the role. He's the front runner, by the way. He has 54, I think it is, MPs backing him, which is way ahead of the second uh, most popular, Penny Mordaunt, who's on about 37, 38. So he's way ahead. Um, And he is well known to have had some tensions with Boris Johnson. He obviously resigned from the government last week. He sort of embarrassed Boris Johnson, and he was one of the main reasons that Boris Johnson is now in a position where he has to resign. So him and Boris, there's no sort of love loss there. But he gave almost a cringy statement yesterday at his launch. He said Boris Johnson was one of the most honourable people he's ever met. He said, you know, he was fantastic. Boris Johnson should be proud. And it was it was quite sickening, actually, from a, from a man who has sort of been, uh, I wouldn't say scheming, but privately well known to have his differences with the Prime Minister now coming out saying how brilliant he was. And then Nadim Zahawi, who I just mentioned, the new Chancellor, who has just been eliminated from the race he was asked on the radio this morning you know would you ever offer Boris Johnson a cabinet position and he said absolutely if Boris Johnson wants to return to the cabinet I would certainly offer him a cabinet position and a few hours later he's been eliminated from the race which probably tells you all you need to know about uh, where conservative party members are on Boris Johnson okay people love to uh they, they love to go to the books on I don't know if lead lead brooks or whatever I don't know if they're offering odds on this but the yeah, polls yeah, what are the, okay what are the polls saying then about who the two final candidates will be well, what's interesting is obviously this this starts off being an election just of Conservative MPs. So it's a very small selectorate of around 380 people. But nonetheless, when we get down to the final two with the eventual decision, I mean, we'll, we will have a new prime minister by the 5th of September. That is the date we're all working to. And we hope to get to the final two next week. And then when we have that final two, we'll start seeing the polls really shift because as, as it's been mentioned earlier, Nathan, we had 11 candidates. So the polling's a bit all over the place. But the two key authoritative polling sources, the first one is Conservative Home, and that is a real obvious, obviously insight into where Conservative Party members are. The top candidate is Penny Morden. Now, she is currently second with nominations. As I mentioned earlier, she's the first female Defence Secretary. She was only in the position for a little while. She was sort of sidelined by Boris Johnson. She was a minister, but she's a Brexit-backing MP. She's seen as very sort of patriotic, but she's also seen as someone who can unite both wings of the party. Which is which is sort of crucial for Conservative members at this point. She comes in at first on this Conservative home poll with Kemi Badenoch, another relative outsider, someone who's seen on the right of the party uh, uh, coming in at second. And the other poll that's been done is one by YouGov. What's interesting? The exact same results. This again of Conservative Party members. The Conservative home poll was on Monday. This has dropped in the last three hours. Penny Morden out in front, 27% of Conservative Party members backing her. Kemi Badenoch, who I just mentioned, again in second place. And Rishi Sunak, the front runner in terms of MPs, he only has the support of 13% of Conservative Party members. So there's a bit of a gap between where MPs are and where the actual membership of the party are who will end up voting on who the next Prime Minister is. Who needs football season? It's all go. Over there, Henry Riley, thank you very much for your time, sir. That is the latest on, and I'll call it the latest because those will be shifting stands and we will uh, stay on top of them right here at First Up. Twelve past five. If you're listening live to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere, maybe you can uh, listen to the podcast whenever you like. 
Today is uh, is Bastille Day, so I just want to know two and I want best things best things about France, favorite things about France. Maybe you've never been there, but is there something you think, oh, that'd be kind of cool? Or you, are you like me? Do you just love a croissant? Two one oh one a baguette. There we go. Baguettes are good as well. Uh, to <laughs> Jeremy's to sit in my ear or New Caledonia. There we go. Email us first up at rnz.co.nz. Tahiti for me. Anyway, uh, Europe continues to swelter under a heat wave. Uh, joining me now from a very toasty Sweden, we're going to find out what t- uh, Sweden's version of toasty is, is our correspondent, Dr. Anita Purcell Sherland. Kia ora, Anita, how are you? Hi, thank you, Kia ora. Okay, um, there, the heat wave through Europe continues. Can you just quickly tell us how hot is it where you are in Sweden and then tell us about uh, these wildfires going on in France? Well, in Sweden, uh, at the moment today, the temperature was roughly about 26 degrees, but last week it was well into the 30s. So we've had uh, a lot of rain, which actually Southern Europe needs at the moment, uh, rain. But um, if we look at Greece, for example, over a 1,000 firefighters and nearly 20 aircraft are battling major fires across the country, while extra firefighters, planes, helicopters and vehicles are arriving from France Switzerland, Romania, Cyprus, Croatia, Israel and Sweden. Now, just before I'm talking to you and according to Agence France Press, a firefighting aircraft has crashed off Greece's coast. Now, the the pilot managed to make a crash landing while the aircraft ignited and he managed to leave the plane. The two people are still missing at sea, according to AFP. If we look at France, about 6,000 people have been evacuated to safety in the country's Atlantic coastal parts as forest fires spread um, after burning more than nearly 3,000 acres of area. In Portugal, the National Meteorological Institute is warning that 80% of mainland Portugal is at risk of fires and temperatures of around 45 degrees. And on Tuesday, over 800 firefighters worked to control over 30 fires. And in Spain, scorching temperatures reaching from between 42 to 45 degrees Celsius is affecting almost all of the country. And it's expected that this heat wave will last for up to 10 days. Oh my goodness, I mean we had three days of I think mid-30s here and it, it felt hellish, so that's unbelievable uh, what's going on there. Um, let's switch to something very different. What are these, what are the Uber files? Well, the so-called Uber files are over 120,000 confidential documents leaked to the Guardian newspaper by Mark McGann, who was Uber's former chief lobbyist in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Now, the leaked records cover over 40 countries and the period of 2013 to 2017, in which Uber was aggressively expanding across the world. Now, EU authorities are urged to investigate its former Vice President for the EU Commission, Nelly Crows, for allegations that she helped Uber lobby the Dutch government. French President Emmanuel Macron is also under the spotlight for his advocacy and support of Uber while economy minister. Now, basically, just to give an example of what's wrong with Uber was, according to the documents, um, Uber built a dummy version of its own app called Grayball designed to deceive regulators and help its unlicensed cab drivers evade the law. It was used in Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany and Denmark. And basically, when police regulators and the public opened the fake Uber app, they would see dozens of cars around a city waiting to be summoned. But the issue was that the cars were fake. Also, high profiled academics in France and Germany were paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce reports used as part of Uber's lobbying campaign. Ah, 
Ah, unbelievable. Thank you uh, very much, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland, with us live there from Sweden and all the latest news there from Europe. Oh, boy. Okay, anyway, uh, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield and Dr. Aisha Varel will hold a press conference at 12.30 today where we'll find out what tweaks might be made to the orange traffic light setting and this is to help curb the soaring numbers of COVID-19 infections and what they're doing to the health system. It's something they're looking into in Australia as hospital beds fill up and health authorities ponder whether mandatory mask wearing across retail and public transport should be reintroduced. The ABC's Stephanie Smale looks at the public's appetite for change. For some Melburnians getting their coffee this morning, a return to mask mandates isn't something that worries them. I'd wear one straight away. I'm actually not wearing one now, much to my shame. But yes, no problem. I'm a Melburnian, so I've lived through it all. So whatever we need to do, we just need to do it again. This woman says she'd even be open to another lockdown, despite having endured so many already. I'll always have PTSD, but you know what? I'd rather have that than have another 900 people die in that such short period of time. Another cafe customer points out mandates might be the only way to get people to wear a mask saying he would happily wear one more often if it helped. I think a recommendation for the most part is kind of a general suggestion, (laughs) whereas mandates, I think, have a little bit more weight to them and uh, I think more people are more likely to comply with a mandate than a recommendation. I think it's important to remember that, yeah, COVID's still quite around and there's still quite a lot of um, vulnerable people in our community. Further precautions are not unreasonable at this stage. For others, the thought of another lockdown is grim. Oh, God, that was horrible. Did I ever want to go through anything like that again? He doesn't support a mask mandate or further public health precautions either. It's up to every individual to make their own choice on that side. Personally, myself, I'm not too stressed about it. This day and age, we've been through a lot, so now it's just basically up to us to make our own decisions on how we live our life and how we protect ourselves. In Brisbane, as COVID cases keep rising, these friends do think masks should be on the agenda. Indoors, yes, and I think like companies and inside they should be enforcing it because it is proven to be helpful. Have you been wearing a mask inside at all? No, I haven't. But with it increasing, I would support wearing masks inside again. Have you been wearing a mask yet inside or thinking about it? Really only when I go to medical facilities, so that makes sense, I think, definitely. And anywhere that's mandated at the moment, so public transport, I think, makes sense. Would you think about wearing a mask at shopping centres and stuff going forward? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And for us with children, we just want to protect our babies and they can't have the booster or anything like that yet. So, yeah, that's the priority. And this Sydney cider who's in Brisbane for a visit, says she's open to a mandate too. Yes, I've been wearing a mask on public transport in Sydney and also in confined spaces. Do you think that governments should bring mandates in again? If it's necessary for public health reasons, yes. So what's stopping Australia from taking more precautions? Well, some experts say psychology and politics are at play, but they all agree that mask mandates could make a difference and do it quickly. Rani Heyman reports. As COVID hospitalisations rise across the country, state and territory governments and the Commonwealth are encouraging people to wear a mask, but they're not making it law. So what's stopping the country's leaders from making the move? Professor Adrian Esterman is an epidemiologist at the University of South Australia. It's very much more a political decision. We've got the situation where, you know, chief public health officers saying, please bring back mask mandates and the politicians are saying no. 
So, yes, it's a political decision. 4,464 people with COVID were in hospital across the country yesterday, nearly half of those in New South Wales alone. We've already seen in most states and territories there's massive ambulance ramping. We've got a medical and a nursing staff resigning because they're just so stressed out. And we've got a massive flu season on top of that. And, you know, I think it is all coming to a head, basically. But it's not just the politicians. Professor Esterman believes the communities also lost interest in public health measures after being sold a message of learning to live with the virus. He says messaging around the importance of a third and fourth dose and better ventilation of indoor spaces are the first two measures that could help drive down hospitalisations. The third thing I think that needs to happen and might even be forced on state and territory governments is a reintroduction of face mask mandates. Now, I'm not talking about when you go out and about in the streets. I'm talking about on public transport, in airports and in retail settings. If that's undertaken, we'll see these numbers start to dampen down. Experts in social behaviour believe the community's attitude has changed. People are seeing those in the community around them not wearing masks. And so, you know, we have got that kind of community mentality about whether or not the precautions are needed. Associate Professor Holly Seal is an infectious disease social scientist at the University of New South Wales. She says if the government isn't going to introduce mandates, it'll be up to individuals to take action. If you've got elderly parents, if you've got people who are unwell, pregnant women, obviously people who are out and about, young people, you know, making sure you nudge them to say, wear a mask when you're in busy places or, you know, especially if they're eligible to go and get that vaccine. The political realities of making good public health decisions are more complicated than ever, according to the director of polling company Redbridge, Cos Samaras. He says research shows the community isn't on board with being told what to do anymore. Any mandate of any sort will trigger a level of PTSD, so to speak, within the community. So I think politicians across the country are nervous around that aspect of it. Reminding people of the pandemic is not a good political tactic anymore. In fact, it creates a lot of resentment within the electorate. That's the sort of feedback we're getting back from voters constantly now. But Mr Samaras says there may come a time where a public health crisis gives politicians no choice. What the hospital system could look like at that point is anyone's guess. Governments have to balance the demand between having to worry about how the electorate's going to respond to additional restrictions and then obviously the electorate's experience with an overburdened hospital system. Sooner or later, they're going to be caught in a catch-22 situation where they will have to make a decision as to how to actually alleviate that burden because the hospital system not being able to function is going to become a political problem as well. It's polling director Cos Samaras ending that report from the ABC's Rani Heyman. It's 5.23. Uh, I'm Nathan Radade and you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. So coming up, we're going to be joined by a Christchurch butcher who's been flooded for the sixth time in just three years. And also we go to Suva as the Pacific Islands Forum is heading into its final day after a turbulent week. Well, uh, look, yeah, keep your best things about France coming in. 2101, today's Bastille Day, so we just thought favourite French things of any sort that, that you like. You, you don't have to have been there, but if you have, I'd love to hear about it. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, you know, look, uh, look, we talk a lot about electric vehicles these days, uh, but there's nothing electric about one of today's featured cars on Trade Me, apart from its colour. And today is a two-car day, as producer Jeremy Parkinson talks with Trade Me's Ruby Topsand about a more traditional vehicle, a 1966 Jaguar. 
So it's been with its current owner for four years and was purchased from a close friend who had owned it for over 20 years. And you can tell that it's just been so beautifully looked after. It does look like it could do with a little bit of work regarding the paint. The description does say that there's a couple of small oil leaks. So perhaps might need some attention there and, and might be well suited to somebody who has a desire to pick up those few little things that need doing but um yeah so it's it's is it british racing green it's a pretty close uh, color to british racing green but it's got everything you want in a jaguar it's got the walnut trim and all that kind of thing it yeah. does look, and leather leather uh, upholstery so it does look and like silver, the, the beautiful silver window winders and gosh i don't even know a word for that anymore because they're so outdated window <laughs> wind downers <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a beautiful car and, and that beautiful wooden interior too and you, and you don't see many of them around anymore. Uh, when I was growing up, they were all over the show, but not so much anymore. They've, um, you know, uh, mm. they all haven't been looked after as well as this one. So that's a, a 1966 Jaguar S-Type. This closes when? Uh, Sunday the 24th? Yeah, bit of time on this one. Sunday 24th, and it's currently got no bids, but I'm sure that it will get a lot of interest. It's got 547 watch, list, watch listers, so it's certainly got some fans there. And property this week, there's a property in uh, Wanaka, which looks like the world's coldest house because it's all glass and beautiful, but you'd imagine it isn't. And I would say that the power bill will be excessive, but I think if you're going to be buying this house, I don't think you're worried about power bills. Yeah, I'm sure it's all double glazed and whatever, whatever else. But yeah, this is quite something. It's a glass house, it's called, and it is got entirely panoramic views of the beautiful countryside down in Otago. It's got underfloor heating, gas fireplace, which would help warm it up. But yeah, four bedrooms, all open plan, everywhere's got, every single room has got a scenic outlook. It does kind of look like the roof is floating. It's amazing. Um, and this one's designed by Paul Clark. I do wonder, I mean, the thing that comes to mind with me is keeping it all clean. You'd go through a lot of window lean, wouldn't you? You certainly would. Just the open plan nature of it. It actually it looks like you're living outside. Yeah, it, it really does. It does. And it's... It would be quite amazing at night, I imagine, too. Yeah. Te Ariki Nui is, is the name of the uh, name of the house, so have a look at that one. And lastly today, another car, this time a 1933 Ford Roadster. Now, this is a hot rod, so it's like if, you know, you're thinking ZZ Top kind of styles, this comes not at a particularly cheap price. They want around $105,000, but it's an incredible purple hot rod. Tell us a wee bit about this. So this was the second Ford car that boasted a V8 engine ever made. And it was actually the first one that was available on mass. It was produced on mass and therefore made a little bit more affordable for the first time in 1933. No, no longer is it anywhere near affordable to $105,000. Amazing looking car, good Sunday drive car. It's purple of all colours. And there wouldn't be a lot of uh, 1933 left in this. It's a very, very modern rebuild. Yes, and that the rebuild is outlined extensively in the uh, description there. Everything from polishing the water pump to fixing up the noisy gear drive, it's all been done. So unlike that first car we spoke about, this one won't need much. This, is just, this one's ready to go. It was Ruby Topsand from Trade Me. Bye. 
Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. The day of our life, we like to call the 14th of July. Uh, let's go birthdays first. One of my favourite actresses. I love everything she's in. I just love watching her. Jane Lynch. She's 62 years old. I think I was trying to figure out my favourite role, and I think it is as the dog trainer in Best in Show. Just a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful comedian. Happenings on this day, uh, well, uh, yep, Storming of the Bastille on this day kicked off the French Revolution in 1789. That's why I'm after your favourite French things today on 2101. Also on this day, in 1850, it was the first public demonstration of ice being made by refrigeration. A Florida physician called John Gorey came up with this, and people were like, well, where did you get this? Made it in my icebox, that's what he called it. Um, he didn't profit at all from the invention, though, actually. Uh, however, the thing was, I was quite impressed by that. How do you just invent a fridge out of nowhere? Well, seven years earlier, he had invented air conditioning so that he could do his operations, and I reckon he just left it on too long, and that's when he figured there was ice on, because that's pretty much what happens uh, all the time. Um, easy Rider. Uh, was released on this day in 1969 and an interesting movie because it only cost $400,000 to make yet it grossed $60 million worldwide $400,000 to $60 million that's quite a good conversion rate and I thought to myself that might be the champion until I realised that 30 years later than that, on this day in 1999, a movie called The Blair Witch Project was released. Two young filmmakers went, we've got this great idea, let's shake the camera around a lot and just pretend we've found some documentary footage, right? It cost them $70,000 to make it. The Blair Witch Project worldwide bought in $248.6 million at the box office. Now, to be fair, they did, uh, some investors came along and they shooshed up the audio, so the eventual cost was $400,000. Still, um, $400,000 to $248.6 beats $400,000 to $60 million. Still, very, very, very profitable, profitable day to be releasing uh, cheap movies on this day, Bastille Day, the 14th. And it is business time, so joining us from the business team, it is Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles. Kia ora to you, Nathan. Just thinking about those uh, investments and the returns they got on those movies, mm. of course you say it doesn't sound much, but you would have to inflation adjust them yes. these days to take account, and you would find that they're probably worth a damn sight more than they were yeah, then. Yeah, it would be, were they? That was a yeah. good investment. Which, of that course, one. is actually very uh, relevant for what we're going to have a natter yeah. about. Tell, tell me about this. The, the interest rates uh, and inflation, inflation here and everybody, overseas. Yeah, everybody yeah. all around the world, it is the number one economic issue. Uh, record high inflation uh, and the move by central banks, such as the Reserve Bank, to bring out the old sledgehammer and to... Uh, beats it with high interest rates. We should note, for instance, overnight that US inflation has hit 9.1%, which makes our 6.9% uh, at the moment look quite reasonable. Uh, although we will get new numbers, uh, inflation numbers on Monday. Expectations it will go to perhaps as high as 7.4%, uh, once again, a 30-year high. And that's what's prompting uh, central banks such as the Reserve Bank to raise their interest rates in big slabs. Now, 
Now, the Reserve Bank yesterday, it was half a percentage point to 2.5%. Expect another half a percentage point rise in six weeks' time. That will take us to three. And by the end of the year, the cash rate will be, by uh, most guesses, around 3.5%. Now, if you think that's pretty sturdy action, once again, overnight, the Bank of Canada, which is the equivalent of the RBNZ, raised its cash rate by 1%. Wham! You know, that's like, that's not just throwing you a brick, that's throwing you a whole truckload of bricks. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, they, uh, they once again, do, they're all doing the same thing, which is that they're getting big interest rate rises in as early as they can, uh, and they've just got their legs, their fingers, their eyes, and anything else that they can cross uh, they're just doing that, hoping that they don't drive the rece- their economies into recession because the aim of interest rates, high interest rates, is to slow down economic activity. Slowing down economic activity means we don't spend, it means we don't hire, it means we don't invest. And they're the sort of things that can cause recession. So it's one big unhappy jigsaw at the moment on the economic front. The Canadians might have to break into. Uh, do you know about the, the QMSP? That it's it's the the um they're the OPEC people. There's actually they actually have a massive store just in case of maple syrup ah. in Canada. And if you think I'm lying, everybody, you go hit the Google and That's read true. about that. So they actually might have to they might have to break into that soon if they're they going to do they, that. They may well do because because what they need to do is to engineer a shortage to push up the price, which they can then sell into. Yeah. She, she has a sort of dodgy thinking that a lot of business people can engage in, and governments as well. <laughs> Ringing out the nations are, hey, hey bud, you don't want a dry pancake do you? No. no. So, uh, let's get back and to the Belgians. Fr- and if I can just talk about <laughs> yes. favourite French things, very fast trains, the TGV, oh. and the Musée d'Orsay, which is uh, an old railway station turned into an art gallery. Uh, it has the most fantastic Van Goghs and other impressionists in there. Makes, nice. It makes you dream. I have never heard of that. I'm going to go and look at it. Thank you very much. Uh, Giles Beckford there with um, business and culture and everything. And the business team will be back on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Let's have a look and see what your New Zealand dollar is doing on Thursday's money market. It's buying you 61.53 US cents, 90.69 Australian cents, and look at that, the euro and the US dollar are about the same, 61.02 euro cents, 51.61 British pence, 4.13 yuan, 84.43 Japanese yen, if you're buying rubles, 35.98 of those, and 69.62 Pacific francs. Well, speaking of the, of the Pacific, two Chinese officials were kicked out of the Pacific Islands Forum meeting yesterday, where US Vice President Kamala Harris was being beamed in to address regional leaders. Today is the final day of the meeting, and with me now is our correspondent in Suva, Lise Movuno, uh, Movuno, who was uh, actually the person that alerted Fijian authorities to the presence of the two Chinese defence attaches at yesterday's meeting. Kia ora, Lise, how are you? Kia ora, and Marina and Yandra to you, Nathan. I'm, I'm well, a little exhausted now, though, but very good, thanks. So take us through it. This is great. You're right in the middle of the news. This is great. So tell us through that. You're, you're there, and then what went down, and, and then tell us how you even recognised them. 
Well, you know, it's, it's, it's all rather blowing up now, but what it was really was, you know, me standing in, in a very narrow space with about 20 or so other journalists, you know, getting ready because Kamala Harris is about speaking. It's such a big deal. And then there's, there's not enough space. And so I'm looking around, trying to see a place uh, to get, you know, close to the speaker, get good audio and make sure that everyone else around me, who are mostly Kiwis, uh, have a good vantage point as well. And then I look and I realize, oh, there's someone here that's not a journalist. And I recognize him because I've seen him in, in Chinese military gear before. He's been at other events. And there was one where he had actually uh, had me and another cameraman thrown out of. So I, rem- I remember that, oh, this is the guy from the Chinese embassy. And just the night before, he was at another forum event where he kind of stood out. And I realized, oh, that's him. So I go over and I ask him, um, are you here as an embassy official? Well, are you here as Xinhua, you know, as a journalist from the, the Chinese government news agency? Hmm. And he, you know, just shakes his head as if to say that he can't understand me. So I ask again, and he does the same thing. And then another journalist who speaks uh, Chinese walks over and translates. And then we both realize, oh, he is pretending to be a journalist, not really meant to be here. So I go to one of the, you know, Fijian civil servants and ask, um, hey, are Chinese government officials meant to be here too? And she goes... I don't think so. Go talk to the protocol people. I do that, and the protocol people tell me, no, not meant to be any Chinese government officials in here. And so I said, well, there is, and he's taking up space in the journalist, uh, in in the media area. You all need to do something about that. So he he turns to me and goes, talk to the police right now. And there was a Fijian intelligence police close by, and I go over and I say, hey, um, so there's a Chinese government official where the media are meant to be. Uh, are you going to do something? And he goes, point him out to me so I can remove him. And I point him out. He gets removed. I go about my way doing my work and, and sitting down to listen to Kamala Harris. And half an hour later, it's it's blown up. And <laughs> I didn't realize what was happening. But, so yeah. th- were, were they detained? And has, has Beijing said anything about this? Well, I, I went on and continued about my work and, you know, filed uh, for RNZ Pacific. And then I realized about an hour later that there was a big kerfuffle, that there was actually two of them. I only saw one. That there was actually two of them and that they were removed and that um, outside there was, you know, a bit of a confrontation. And then they came back in. I did have conversations later because it turned into a news story. And I did have off-the-record conversations with officials from the U.S. Embassy, the Australian Commission, and the Fijian government's protocol service. And what I did find out is that they um, were removed, and then they came back in. There was a confrontation around, you know, why were the Americans allowed to be here? Why did they get such a big screen? And they came back in and sat where the Australian diplomatic delegation were meant to be sitting and videoed the entire process, including the behavior and the speeches of Fijian government officials. So Beijing has not said anything. Um, Earlier, Beijing had said they have nothing to do with what's happening at the forum. They're supportive of, you know, the Pacific solidarity and unity. So um, nothing about them in particular. I did go and ask Fijian government authorities, why were they there in the first place? How could they have been there when security is so strict and we get checked on our passes all the time? And what I was told was, ma'am, it was an open event. It was open to the public. Anyone, any media from anywhere was allowed to be there. And I said, well, no, security is very high. 
this is a forum-only event. Why were they there? And I got smiles, like smiles to say that you're getting smiles. Lethe, I remember asking you, if you, what, two days ago about this, going, why are only 10 media allowed? And now all of a sudden, no, no, everyone is, is allowed. And that's what they're saying. Anyway, look, we, we've run out of time. Now, Lethe, tomorrow um, we'd like to catch up again and just get a, uh, a pricey, because I know today's the final day of it, so we can get all of uh, what's going on. But uh, Lethe Mavuno joining us there from Suva. What a day for her. Uh, it's uh, what seventeen two six. Uh, I'm Nathan Rarity. You're listening to First Up here in RNZ National. Between now and six, you're going to hear from a former undercover police officer who thinks the government's new gang laws are all half and very little stuff. Uh, plus, a Christchurch butcher who's been fighting for the sixth time in just three years. <laughs> The professionals of RNZ are the Morning Report team. It is Corin Dan who's uh, stepping up to bat right now. Kia ora, sir. How are you? What's happening today? Uh, Tamania, good morning, everybody. Uh, we'll have more on the gangs like you have been uh, covering off this morning on Morning Report. We'll talk to the Minister, Chris Hipkins, uh, as well as those on the front lines trying to stop people going into gangs in the first place. Uh, exercising at gyms. I was actually back at the gym yesterday and thinking about this. It was pretty empty, thankfully. But apparently, according to Farah Hancock, who's done this excellent series on... Uh, breathing in ear and other people's ear uh gyms do people can push out a lot more uh bad particles if you like i've smelled gymnasiums yeah yeah Hello. i mean as long as they're big i don't mind you know big open gyms they're all right but you know uh yeah i suppose it's kind of common sense isn't it if you're in there huffing and puffing away trying to push <laughs> turn or whatever huffing and puffing and sweating <laughs> uh we'll also uh look in on uh look ahead basically today to what might come with the government's COVID announcements. There's mm. talk of uh, more masks, more rat tests uh, being more widely available, but not necessarily any further restrictions. So we will preview that as well and check in on the international news. Sri Lanka in particular is the area we'll be focusing on with more unrest there as the uh, the, the uh, crisis continues. Yeah. Corin Dan, who likes to get into the gym and just clang and bang there with the free weights. Is that what they call it? Clanging and banging? I don't know. I don't know about free yeah. weights, mate. That's a bit beyond so, me. Okay, right. There we go. Thank you very much, sir. Well, look, uh, the government is expanding police powers in a bid to crack down on gang violence. And under the new legislation, officers will be able to search and seize gang properties, cars and motorbikes. Previously, search warrants could only be issued for individuals and covered only specific vehicles or, ad- or addresses. And a new criminal offence is being introduced, making it illegal to discharge a firearm with the intent to intimidate under any circumstances. I asked Barrister and former police officer Tony Boucher what he made of the new legislation. It's interesting that Hipkins rejects what he describes as the the rhetoric of tough on crime versus soft on crime. Well, I reject that. It's my view that a, um, a really sustained and focused and properly resourced police units that are unrelenting in their pursuit of gangs is really the answer. So tough on crime as far as gangs is concerned is not rhetoric. It's exactly what the uh, New Zealand public should be able to expect from its police and it's not getting from its police. Okay, so you think that actually what are these, are they just a bit of window dressing really, These, um, as you see it, these measures? Yeah, I sort of see it, you know, all huff and very little stuff. He says that he wants to make sure that the police have all the right tools to combat the gangs. What I say is that the police have all the tools in their toolbox that they will ever need to combat gangs. But what it takes is a resolute and hard-nosed 
police management to actually focus on gangs and do what is required, and that's not what they're doing. Mm. Now, you know, if we just sort of look back a few years, and um, in the late 70s, for example, there was lawlessness in downtown Queen Street, and the public had had enough of it. It was serious, and a superintendent by the name of Gideon Tate arrived in Auckland as the district commander, and he formed teams called the Team Policing Units. Uh, he picked the biggest solid guys that he could corral from all over the country, formed these units, and they went downtown and they were unrelenting in cleaning up Queen Street. And other cities also took up that and set up team policing units. So that's one example. They cleaned up downtown uh, Auckland, which was becoming lawless. If you think back to the early 80s, there was problems with the gangs under the Muldoon government. There was a focus on gangs by the police. And what I'm talking about is a police hierarchy in those days or management who had direct experience in frontline policing. They set up shadow patrols. So any time the gangs moved from one place to the other, there were teams of the police following them and absolutely took control of them and any lawlessness from them, they were arrested, taken out and were dealt with. That dealt with that problem. So there's a history of, of the New Zealand police when problems get to a magnitude that they actually do something resolute. Mm. But at the moment, my impression is that they're not doing that. The team policing units, though, are interesting, right? So so that sounds to me like it's the old, right, we're going to get in there, as you said, physically big policemen that know they're going into a confrontation. So, But in the late 70s, you could probably jump out of a van with, you know, a van with battens and expect a fist fight and possibly a knife. Like, now wouldn't you be sending police into gangs that feel they have to arm themselves and all of a sudden we're one of those nations with shootings all over the place on, on the news? Well, we've already got there, haven't we? What we've got is unarmed police who are confronting multiple firearms and incidents every day around the country, and it's not working. I don't want to overcook it, but it's almost like a war at the moment, and the police are going in there with ping-pong bats. Now, what it requires is hard-nosed, resolute, focused teams mm. to go in there and be unrelenting in their policing, that is their sole focus. If you have a look at, for example, we've got a problem with family violence in this country. What have the police done? They've set up specific units to deal with family violence, and they're making inroads in it. I'm not saying that they're winning that one because it's such a huge problem, but they're actually focusing on it because they see it as a problem. But they're not doing that with the gangs. You might recall, you know, the key government, they financed the police to focus absolutely on methamphetamine. The police, well, I'm not saying they're making inroads on it, they're certainly making some pretty big seizures, but what we are seeing is the result of a good and focused and unrelenting attack on methamphetamine. We've now got to the stage here, and I don't think there would be anybody in this country who would disagree, that we need to do something which is focused, resolute, that we've got teams of police intelligence gathering, those in blue uniforms and all the other resources that they need to deal with gangs. Those are the views of Tony Boucher, uh, uh, Boucher sorry, here at um, 
First up on RNZ National, and look, while the nation was bucketed uh, by rain from that atmospheric river last week, one Christchurch butcher was left to deal with his business flooding for the sixth time in just three years. David Timms is the retail manager at Peter Timms Meats in Edgeware. Uh, he's, he's with us now. Kia ora, David. Really? Six times in three years? Yeah, yeah, it's been a bit of a rough three years, actually, with the, you know, global warming, I suppose, and a bit, bit of... Rain and weather hitting our way up the east coast, so yeah. No, it's a bit so tell me, tell me about this. Do you had the property before these? What before these three years? Had it flooded much before? Like, is it a drains yeah. problem or something? <laughs> no, it's it's flooded pretty much once a year since the Canterbury earthquake. Oh, okay. Yeah, but the the area is low lying. Oh. So, we, so what you do now is you have a look at the weather forecast, and you can pretty much tell that it's going to flood again. We we have an idea. Normally, thirty five to forty mils of rain in an afternoon will put water through my shop. Oh no! So you so you see this coming? It's like oh no, get the get the sandbags out again is what we're doing. Is it a case where you can go to the council and and ask for help? Have they been able to do that something like that for you? We we have asked for help on many occasions. Um, a bit of, bit of email correspondence, but but no, nothing actually come. No one actually comes out and does anything about it. It's uh, it's old infrastructure. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's terrible. From what I hear over in Bromley, I mean it's like they've been asking for a long time to deal with their stink, and nothing happens there uh, as well. So uh, they, they're not doing anything for you. This has got to be horrible for you. Before I get into dollar cost, just tell me about. I mean the mental cost of it of seeing that weather and seeing the you know hearing that this giant river's coming in the sky and you being like, oh no, I've got to go through this again. It must be awful for you. Yeah, it is, and it's also for Peter. He's he's seventy five years old now, and. He doesn't need to have that sort of stress on on us, you know, on us. Well, it's a uh, lot, lot to go through considering we've been doing it for nine years now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. How much is it costing? Do you know? Like, it, um, it costs two days trade. Yeah, okay. plus wages. Yeah, so it, it, it adds up. You know, um, and also every time you insure, insurance premiums are very high down there now. Yeah. So, what do you have to do with the stock when you? Uh, you know, does it does it leak through into any of the of the cool stores that you've got or anything like that? Because we've been through it so many times, all our motors for our, our refrigeration are up on the roof, um, and everything is up off the floor now. So the, you can't really get to the back fridges now. We've got uh, you know, procedures in place now because we've done it so many times. Yeah. Um, and, and any stock that can't be sold, obviously, we've got another shot, luxury of having another shop. So we just we just truck it over. Yeah. So, David, tell me this: is it um, is, is it also that your neighbouring stores uh, around or, or houses around are experiencing this too? Yep, exactly the same. We lease we lease two buildings next door, which we run a small bakery out of, um, and that nearly came through there yesterday. Oh, that's awful. I mean, like you say, it's really uh, hopefully it's infrastructure that that can that can help with this, right? Like, what what would you like to see done uh, out the front? I mean, I know if we could, we'd get it done today or we'd get it done tomorrow or started at least for you. But what at least would you like to see? I guess more than just getting an email back. Yeah, well, we had a positive uh, information come out of it yesterday. Um, like. Phil Major turned up when the water was just about to come in the store, and he managed to get a sucker truck and started to suck the water from one drain and, and put it to another one that could handle it down the road. Um, he seems to know what he's about when it comes to that sort of thing. And it, it stopped a lot more water coming through stock. Yeah, it helped a lot. 
So if, if we were experiencing a lot of rain, um, that we only need a pump for two hours. Yeah. And how Just, how, how, how are you coping? David? Yeah, yeah, no, better now. I wasn't, I wasn't too flashed yesterday. You know, you just get, it, you just get over it. But uh, after seeing customers come back in the store and everyone's going, you know, good on you, get into it. Um, yeah, we're, we're back to normal now. But yeah, great community support support down here. Eh? It's great. Well, well, that's good to hear. I'm sorry that you were going through this, David. Quickly check out the the address of where you are in Christchurch. Uh, so number know. seventy Edgeware Road, St Albans, Christchurch. There you go. Go there, everybody. Let's help David out. He's going through a bugger of a time, and uh, the others and get something from the bakery too. Thank you very much. Uh, there is uh, David Timms, manager at Peter Tim Meats there in Edgeware. What a horrible situation to go through. Look, finally this morning, some of your feedback. I asked for your favourite things about France because it's Bastille Day. France, to paraphrase, Anthony Bourdain, red wine and runny cheese. Also steak and chips are great. That's from Adrian. Uh, best thing, RE France, the, <laughs> the Marquis de Sade. Thank you. Uh, another one, Obelisk and his little dog. Uh, Yvette and Maria from Aloha Low. Uh, kissing, says someone else. Best thing about France, lovely bread and staying in motor camps where food takeaway food trucks serve champagne with white napkins folded around the neck of the bottle. That's pretty good. Uh, one of the best things to come out of France is bullfolk dancing. We have New Zealand groups started by Michael Parmenter, so you could give it a go. Thanks very much, Claire. Um, and uh, yeah, praise coming in for Lethem of Uno, uh, one of the best first up, first hand news stories ever. Okie dokie, uh, we are heading uh, very quickly to Morning Report. Susie and Corinne are standing by. First up, we'll be back in your ears. Up or